low Mickey show. Clash momentarily for clash solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion, and this melted pot. We live in time to build a new system. Unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue. Talking heads left is best. The saga continues. The No Mickey Show. Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. It is Wednesday, December 1st, and it is not a normal day because this is a day where the Supreme Court of the United States is hearing arguments that could likely, based on the, the makeup of the Supreme Court and the history and beliefs of the majority of the members of the Supreme Court at this point, it is likely that Roe v. Wade could be overturned. So I want to talk about something. There's an extraordinary campaign going on right now where you, there's a workaround, abortion pills. Now, of course, this is a prop. There are no abortion pills in it, but I am showing abortion pills. Now, I we've talked about reproductive rights on the show extensively. This is not a new topic that we discuss. Uh, we have Fem Fridays where we've discussed it a lot. We have an all-female show today on a Wednesday. It is so important, especially in these media spaces that are dominated by white men with conservative tendencies, where the algorithms, also something that is being addressed on Capitol Hill today, where the algorithms are skewed more towards conservative male ideologies, it is so important right now that whoever has a platform and the ability to speak out talks about these issues because reproductive justice is a it, it is a civil rights issue. The majority of women who seek and get abortions seek and get abortions because of financial issues. Now, of course, there are horrible other reasons, but they're personal decisions. And uh, you know, over the last forty years. Uh, the conservatives have made this essential piece of their experiment. So even if this is not your issue, which, you know, I hope you're an ally regardless, but even if it is not your issue, understand that this is a principal issue that they have organized around that has gotten them a ton of money to win elections at the state and local level. So if you think that, you know, identity politics, uh, talking about women's rights, is too much, understand that they use it as a tool, and that is how they have been able to win elections. So this is a very important issue right now, um, and it is intersectional, and it does have to do with economic justice. So if, if you know, when we talk about these issues on the show, we're not a reductionist. You know, my perspective is not reductionist. I understand that there are overlapping issues, that there's intersectionality here. And if you're not able to get there, then we're going to help you get there. So for those who uh, have had an abortion, like myself, or those who believe in reproductive justice, um, this is an extraordinary campaign by Shout Your Abortion. You can check them out um, at hashtag Shout Your Abortion, at Shout Your Abortion, at, at short, Shout Your Abortion, hard to say, actually, um, on Twitter. And of course, the website, the, the hashtag right now is Abortion Pills Forever. And this is all because SCOTUS the Supreme Court of the United States may overturn Roe v. Wade, but Shot Your Abortion wants you to know that abortion pills are safe, legal, and widely available online. So if right now you live in a state where it's very hard to access an abortion, you can still get abortion pills online and they can be distributed to you. 
uh, and mailed to you at your address. This decision in Dobbs will very likely lead to abortion being banned in half of the United States. Abortion pills by mail are the best tool we have to minimize the impact of whatever anti-choice legislation we see passed in coming years. And everyone in this country needs to know about this ASAP. So feel free to use whatever messaging you have out there, but I am using my tools and I'm asking you to do the same. This is an extremely important day. This fight doesn't go, uh, you know, no matter what happens with the ruling, you can continue this campaign moving forward so folks know. Um, and it's, you know, there, there are people who are now willing to sponsor their nonprofits because they're usually, these pills are safe and they're about a hundred bucks a pop. But there are also organizations out there. Um, go to this website. You'll learn more. Shout your abortion. The information is in our uh, info section. And, of course, uh, the hashtag, you want to go online and spread it around, is abortion pills forever. Hashtag abortion pills forever. We have an extraordinary show today. Um, I'll display my abortion pills one more time so you all see it. Uh, if we can put that on the main screen. Use this as our, our, our main shot. I want y'all to see it. This is important, very important. So distribute this information out there. You can go to the website and uh, share it with your community and keep it going. We have an amazing show today. We have Melanie DeRigo. Melanie DeRigo, you may recall, has been on the show before. She ran uh, in 2020 against Tom Swazi. He is currently a congressman in Long Island and in a slice of Queens. He's representing uh, the 3rd Congressional District of New York. He is a blue dog bad guy. He is one of those obstructionists. And now he has announced that he is running for governor and that seat opens up. Melanie DeRigo uh, is running again. She has been running and she's uh, been kicking butt. She's also a matriarch candidate for those of you who know that we cover matriarch on the show. Melanie, how's it going? Hi, Nomi. It's great to be here. Uh, thanks so much for having me back. Love to be here. Uh, things are going really well. As you can imagine, uh, the last couple of days have been pretty exciting for us. Yeah. So you, um, you know, you, you did very well last time. Let's just remind folks when, uh, what inspired you to run the first time you ran against Tom Swazi, And, and then we'll get into the type of leadership he's, he's, uh, the type of leader he's been since he's been in Congress and why that matters. Right, right. So, you know, I'll, I'll try to sum it up quickly. Um, I, I'm one of those women that really, you know, was always politically active, um, you know, certainly a consistent voter uh, involved with more issue based groups. Uh, but it's, it's, it's sort of apropos of the topic you were just speaking about. Um, you know, obviously, when Donald Trump was elected, our country was really uh, our, our racism, our misogyny was really exposed in, in a way that um, really made it come out in the open, right? And uh, I, I went down to protest Brett Kavanaugh. And, um, you know, that experience, I think, really planted some seeds in me that I, I didn't even realize until later on. Uh, but at that moment, I had wondered, well, why is my congressman completely silent during these Kavanaugh <laughs> hearings? And, and that really led me down the journey of really looking into how he's voting uh, and, and my shock at, at learning that what he says and how he votes are, are often uh, at odds. Um, so, you know, the more I looked, the more I found that he wasn't representing democratic values, democratic ideals, and, and in many cases, not even supporting um, critical democratic legislation, but often, you know, deciding to caucus with Republicans and support their bills or obstruct democratic legislation. Uh, and I, you know, I really truly believe, and, and this, this is as true today as it was in uh, 2019 when I initially um, first ran 
we're in such a precarious moment in this country. Uh, we January 6th, we saw we're hanging on by threads. It is more important than ever to elect regular people who are going to go to D.C. and fight for working families. Uh, so here I am. We're back to finish what we started. Uh, you know, obviously, we could not have in any world foreseen a global pandemic. Uh, but even with that, you know, we got a little under 30% of the vote, not being able to knock doors, being outspent nine to one. Uh, mm. And but, you know, the silver lining is that it has given us a sizable base of support to relaunch the campaign this year. So we're back. We're still fighting for reproductive rights to repeal the Hyde Amendment, uh, you know, still fighting for Medicare for all, for environmental policy that'll help us realize a Green New Deal, you know, fighting for our communities and putting or centering our families first over the lobbyists that are paying too many of our politicians to vote uh, or pass legislation that favors them at the expense of us. Um, Melanie, you know, you talk about him caucusing with Republicans. Explain mm -hmm. to us what this this little uh, this 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 strategic move was, because I think a lot of folks may hear about it, but don't necessarily know how it functions and how uh, it's been it's been cover for him. Uh, you know, when he goes back to his district. Absolutely. So he, uh, well, it, it's actually more than one caucus now, but he was yeah. most notably um, the vice chair of the Problem Solvers, or still is the vice chair of the Problem Solvers Caucus. This is a caucus that in theory works on bipartisanship. Uh, it's, it's a caucus that's composed of the equal amount of Republicans and Democrats. But when you look at the legislation that they actually support, uh, it's a corporate agenda. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it never favors Democrats. It always favors Republicans. You know, some of their big wins were um, rolling back Dodd-Frank, uh, stripping accountability from the supplemental border aid bill when all the atrocities were coming out when we were first learning about families being separated from children at the border. Um, and and it, it is it is truly a vehicle of um of, of lobbyists, really, to control mm -hmm. our politicians. Uh, Tom, unfortunately, has chosen to side with them uh, over and over and over again. They vote as a caucus, and then they don't tell you their position. They mm -hmm. just say, well, I had to go with my caucus. So it's unfortunate. Um, you know, since January 6th, they've actually allowed more uh, representatives who were involved with the insurrection and over and trying to overturn the election into the caucus. I think there are you serious? Oh yeah. 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 So, so it's not just that he's, it's not like centrist. These are, this is not like a blue doggy kind of thing where it's some centrist Republicans and centrist Democrats get together. It is literally the worst, uh, you know, he's partnering up with the worst far right extremists. This, this is this is Tom Swazi, our, our your current congressman from that district, who's now running for governor of New York, just so everybody knows. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, to me, that is one of the most uh, shocking. Right. After January 6th, we, we would think that Democrats would come together and at least unify that uh, th those folks should no longer be allowed to serve. If you are uh, participating in an insurrection, if you are encouraging it and uh, seeking to overturn the election, what 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 is that? That is a banana republic. Um, exactly. So you know that's really unfortunate. Uh, but yeah, they've welcomed some others in. You know, he he started a faux I call it a faux caucus. It was an environmental caucus where. Uh, they work again in a bipartisanship matter, and I this is intentional. Uh, they have climate deniers in, in the caucus. So you know, here's the thing, and and this is really important. Um, many of our politicians have become masters at gaslighting, and mm. they'll tell you, you know, well, we have to work in a bipartisanship manner. We have to mm -hmm. work across the aisle. Now, look, I don't know a person alive that would say, well, that's a bad idea. We shouldn't compromise. But the real question is, what's under the hood? What are right. we compromising on? How do we compromise when 
thousands of people have, are dying because they can't afford health care? How right. do we compromise on a planet that's burning up? How do we compromise on women's rights? These are not issues we compromise on, right? You want to come to the table in good faith and compromise on, oh, I don't know, how do we reduce carbon emissions? There's many proposals out there. Let's compromise on that. But we can't compromise with folks that don't believe that climate change is real. I, that is irresponsible governing. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely um, ridiculous that they also don't publish their internal votes. I mean, this is one of the most insane things that I I, I heard. And it's, mm -hmm. it's you know, we had our own version of this, obviously, in New York State that you're aware of with, with the IDC. But, but this is a little bit different. They have a membership block. They vote internally. And then they don't release uh, who voted for what. So, you know, let's just create a scenario in, in good faith where you have, uh, you know, seven Democratic members and seven Republican members. And uh, six of the seven Democrats vote uh, for something in, in, involving, you know, the green, like, I'll just say the green new deal. I'm just making something mm -hmm. up and seven Republicans and one Democrat vote against it. It doesn't matter because at the end of the day, as a unit, they all have to vote publicly the way they, uh, the internal vote went, mm -hmm. except the problem is, is you don't know who that is. You don't know if they're actually six Democrats, you know, voting for the, the green new deal and how they're going to act as a caucus. It could be everybody. So as you said, it's, it's, it's like what happens underneath the hood. Um, it's, 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 <laughs> I, I just don't understand how this is not a bigger deal. I guess, I guess it's not a big deal in Congress because of the majority, but, uh, you know, it's just like people are, are learning a little bit more about Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin's um, histories and their moneyed interests and how they work in a bar quote unquote bipartisan way um, and not buying it. But it, it had to happen when there's so much on the line. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, I mean, does he see the writing on the wall? I mean, he, he's he's running for governor, but uh, he's also giving up his seat. Right. I, I think, uh, you know, I've said it for a long time. I I, res I can respect a politician who stands by their values. We, we can have different values. We can have vastly different opinions on policy, but it's the gaslighting that, that really gets us, right? And I think that stalls out any good faith governing. Um, but I, I do believe it's who Tom is, that he, he, hmm. he's just more conservative. You know, he is a conservative person. Um, I, I think he believes in conservative values. And, and I think we're seeing that. And I think we'll, you know, we've, we've certainly seen it in his uh, announcement, right? A lot of the language he used, or a few dog whistles in there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think he's going to try to carve that sort of Eric Adams path way to, the you know, mayor the, elect of New York. Right. I'm sorry. Yes. Um, who is, you know, I, I assume he's hoping, you know, the, the more the merrier in the gubernatorial race so that he can occupy that right lane. Um, you know, it, it remains to be seen. Will, are there enough of those folks? Uh, depends how the vote is chopped up. But I, I think this is who he is. So Long Island, um, I mean, for folks who, who are not familiar with, with New York downstate politics, um, Long Island is sort of seen as a more conservative area of the state. Um, the Democratic Party in, in Long Island just suffered horrifying losses this last election, lost all of their, their members in the state level. Um, and maybe, you know, that's also why he saw some writing on the wall. Who knows? You have redistricting coming up. Uh, the lines have yet to be drawn. What does that mean for your candidacy? I mean, it's um, – we've talked about this before and winning in these types of districts and what kind of Democrat wins in these districts. But what does that mean for you when your plans this time around? Yeah, for sure. So I, I would say that there is a, a vast difference between uh, a conservative area and an area that hasn't been organized. 
right. for, for many parts of Long Island, there uh, just hasn't, there hasn't been historically an organizing infrastructure. Uh, there mm -hmm. hasn't been massive get out the boat, uh, you know, drives there. There, there are folks, families that are, their doors have never been knocked, not once. Not once, That's right? Yeah. That's insane. And and I think what we're starting to see, not only around New York, but really around the country, is that when we come together and we start knocking those doors and we start engaging different sectors of the community and listening to what's important to them and start showing up for other people, beautiful coalitions start to form, right? And mm -hmm. you know, I am I'm so proud of the work that Queens and Long Island has done mm -hmm. over the last several years. Um, you know, in Long Island alone, which you know, Queens is obviously a little bit different, even though it's does sit on Long Island. I, I like to call Queens the uh, progressive capital of the state because what's happening there is just truly incredible. I'm so inspired every day. Uh, but in Long Island, Northwest Queens, not all Queens is the same. No, no. But listen, I, mean, we, I live in Northwest Queens, so I can. But, say but we had some incredible progressive candidates yes. get really close in Northeast Queens, you know, and 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 they continue to come and they're building a pipeline and it's just and it's it's multicultural, it's multi ethnic, it's beautiful, and I'm it inspires me each and every time I'm in Queens. But Long Island, I think we think of traditionally as Suffolk County and Nassau County. But there are well over 100 grassroots progressive groups that have sprung up mm -hmm. on Long Island in the last few years. And they're out there and they're organizing. And, and you know, there's been a significant amount of work to uh, unite these groups and, and build in coalition together, right? Because we know as organizers, when we're building in our silos, it's hard to move the ball. But when we can harness that power and leverage each other's strengths, we're all better off, um, you know, a, a, as a community. So uh, look, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of criticism about what happened in Long Island uh, in November. Nobody likes to lose, right? I mean, nobody. Uh, but I will say it, it wasn't a red wave. Um, you know, Republicans definitely excited their base, you know, with a lot of misinformation, um, some racism, some hate. And, and that was unfortunate because uh, I think when we gaslight folks, whatever side of the aisle you sit on, it just it brings down our community. Um, but frankly, the Democrats lost because they failed to excite their base. Uh, mm -hmm. Many ran to the right. Uh, many didn't have a website, didn't articulate a platform. What? I'm serious. Yeah, I'm serious. Um, so, you know, it's, it's easy to look at the numbers and say, oh, my gosh, what's happening in Long Island? There were some there were a handful of really spectacular candidates that it was unfortunate that, um, you know, they, they didn't have the support that they needed to get across the finish line. And I hope they'll step up and run again. But overwhelmingly. Democrats didn't show up to vote. We've got the numbers here, mm. uh, you know, and, and we're well, very capable uh, of um, of electing progressive Democrats, Democrats, folks like for us, we're, we're a campaign that's trying to bring the Democratic Party back to the values uh, that they purport to represent. You know, when I was 18 years old, I joined the Democratic Party because I believe all people should have health care. Mm -hmm. I believe in civil rights. I believe in human rights. I believe in reproductive choice, you know, and um, we've gotten further and further away from that uh, in this region. And I think that it's going to be very exciting for folks to have a candidate to vote for instead of a candidate to vote against. Well, I mean, it, it, the numbers were down. I mean, is this, I understand organizing is a big part of getting people out to vote, but it, it also is jarring to me that um, on Long Island, where you do have active Democrats, that they mm -hmm. stayed home as Donald Trump has been actively organizing and, and doing rallies um, on Long Island, as it, it's an extremist right wing that is popping up in Long Island. It is, mm -hmm. it is not like a, you know, a libertarian right. It is, it is a far right, you know, hateful. There's a lot of hate incidents. I mean, mm -hmm. every day I open up the paper and there's something happening in Long Island with Trump supporters. Um, 
you'd think that there would be this friction where uh, there'd be the resistance Democrats um, who would show up no matter what. Well, here's the thing. Um, you know, and again, I want to caveat that there were a handful of candidates that really did run for something. Mm -hmm. But the overwhelming amount of candidates ran a, a defensive campaigns or they ran to the right. Mm -hmm. So when you're choosing between an outright Republican and someone that has really championed a lot of Republican issues, you're not motivated to vote. Right. And I think historically we have seen. Uh, you know, the grassroots come out and knock the doors anyway. And, and we did see that a little bit, but certainly not to the level that we've seen in previous elections. Uh, other community members that will typically that aren't, you know, involved all year, but do come out to get out the vote. They didn't come out. Uh, and I think, look, if you look at the policies that, um, you know, were being supported, I, I don't think that they excited the Democratic base. And I don't think there were enough Democrats that said, well, I'm just going to let it slide that, you know, these Democrats are supporting optional mask policies in the middle of a global pandemic. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I mean, doctors, you know, there was a, there's a large uh, population of doctors in, in this district and, and they couldn't they, they couldn't make sense of that. How do we yeah. have a Democratic representative that in a global pandemic is saying, well, maybe kids in school don't need masks? I mean, you know, that's not going to excite folks to vote. So there's a lot more going on than than the numbers, you know, um, Listen, uh, the Democrats broke the tried and true rule. You don't excite the base. The base doesn't come out and vote for you. Um, are there other people now who are now that the seat's opening up? You know, of course, when there's an open seat, everyone, everyone who's interested in running or sitting in office will will come to the table. Right. Uh, have you seen that in the last couple of days? Yeah, I think there's a lot of conversations happening. Uh, you know, uh, there are some folks that are always thinking about running, uh, you know, remains to be seen. Um, we're seeing a lot of hesitancy. There's mm -hmm. folks are very, I think, concerned about redistricting and what that may look like. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, for us, you know, we're very focused on uh, our strategy and continuing to push forward. We feel very well positioned having run in the last election, having, uh, you know, an incredible amount of grassroots support in every county. You know, we have infrastructure in Queens, we have infrastructure in NASA and in Suffolk. And I don't think that there's another candidate, whether they're a sitting elected or someone from the outside that has um, the infrastructure in the base that we do at this point. Um, but you know, Nomi, um, Matriarch early endorsed me, but I'm also the first candidate of the cycle to be endorsed by Brand New Congress, the National Organization for Women, Moms in Office, Progressive Women, of New York, NIPAN, you know, we have we have 12 endorsements. Um, and, and Zephyr Teachout also endorsed us as well. So we're, we're just, you know, we're foot on the gas going all the way because we, I believe and, and my team believes that every day is a gift. And this is an opportunity to bring the voice of working people to the halls of DC. And, and we just need it to happen. Um, when you get to office, what do you what, what is the first issue that you want to bring to the table? Yeah. So, um, you know, there's obviously so many important issues and it's always a hard question to identify the top priority. But what I always come back to is the influence of corporate money in politics is corrupting everything. Uh, mm -hmm. It's where good policy goes to die. It's the reason we can't advance our agenda. Um, and I think we need to build a bigger uh, coalition, a bigger progressive caucus to really combat it. It's really hard, right? Because running for office is very difficult. It requires a lot of time, a lot of sacrifice. Uh, and I, I just, I will tell you as a candidate now, a second time candidate, 
I don't understand a politician who sits through fundraising and then gets to Congress and says, no, we don't need reform here. I mean, we need serious reform. Uh, we need publicly funded elections. We need to make sure that regular folks have the opportunities and the access to run for office, because that is how we will have, uh, I think that's how we'll create the world that we all want to live in. So that is first and foremost, we have to address that in a major way, uh, because without doing so, it's going to be very hard to pass policies to help us realize the Green New Deal. It's going to be very hard to get to universal health care, Medicare for all. Uh, listen, it's going to get hard to do just about anything in Congress. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I've always been, uh, you know, you know, I'm an allied health professional. Healthcare is something that's really important important to me. Uh, and, and, and I will fight with everything I have to make sure that everybody in this country can act, not just access healthcare, mm -hmm. but get healthcare whenever they need it and never have to worry about cost. Um, in the last year, we've seen uh, pressure put on progressives that have been elected to the squad by folks, you know, whether they're progressive or not, or they're online, you know, instigators, um, but there's been a lot of conversation in these spaces about, well, okay, great. Now they're in and and they're the squad, but they're still operating within the confines of the power structures that are determined by Nancy Pelosi. And and even then, as we saw with with this last fight, uh, Pramila Jayapal was was really going, who's the leader of the Progressive Caucus, was going head to head with Nancy Pelosi to try to push for more support, for more um, support for for women, for more support for for working families, and of course, um, you know, protecting workers all over the country. And if, and a lot of those fights were lost. If you're in the Progressive Caucus mm -hmm. and you're dealing with these power structures, are you willing to defy on one issue, like, and stand out, knowing very well that? defy leadership, I should say, knowing very well that you might lose on another issue later. And 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 this is sort of the internal baseball folks don't want to really acknowledge, but mm -hmm. until progressives are in the majority, and you know, hopefully that's sooner rather than later, but it's probably not gonna be. Um, just based on historic trends, this isn't this isn't me being like a <laughs> Debbie Downer. Um, you know, and until you're at that point where you're in the majority, and even then there's like flavors of progressives and every progressive has a different issue that they want to put forward and prioritize. So how are you going to deal with those kinds of situations? And how are you going to, because it, you're going to have tough choices. And mm -hmm. how are you going to explain that to constituents that, that supported you? Right, right. Uh, look, I'm not going to pretend to understand the internal pressures that are on many of our electeds. Uh, but I do think when regular people run for office, you know, by regular people, I mean those that are not connected to enormous wealth, those that are not connected politically. When we step up and run, we're fighting for our va value system, right? And and I fully know I'll, you'll never make anybody happy, or excuse me, you'll never make everybody happy at the same time, right? There are going to be issues that you're going to push on uh, that that will upset some folks. But what we're hoping to do is build a coalition based on values, right? And so. I, my my supporters will know, maybe they don't agree with me on everything, but they will always know that I'm approaching it from the right place, that I'm approaching it from a place that uplifts pe the people of this country and, and not corporations and not lobbyists, right? Because I, I really do think that is, is our biggest barrier. Um, that being said, look, I think... The only thing we can do is continue to support progressives and get more progressives elected to office to get folks that are fighting for us. That's how we build power. You have to be strategic about it. You know, you can't, um, you know, you have to check your ego, right? Yeah. Uh, there, there are issues that are important, but you certainly, you can't throw away um 
you know, you, you can't start a fight. You're not going to win to get nothing in return. So I think for me, it's important. I'm, I'm very, very excited and willing to go to bat for the issues that I care about and that my district cares about. But we have to make sure that it's strategic and that there is an end game. And, you know, I, I understand you know, there's a lot of people upset because they feel um, that government isn't working for them. This has been true for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And and I think that sometimes the squad members and other progressives, it, it all gets lumped on them because they're our hope, right? That's why mm -hmm. we supported them. But at the end of the day, they're human beings also, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gets elevated to this goddess-like, uh, you know, stature. And, and she's wonderful. She, But she's a human being, right? right. Um, and, and I think sometimes when we don't when when we don't get what we want we need someone to take it out on right and sometimes it falls on the squad but i would also like to elevate you know representative cory bush you know she yep. was she's been incredible and and incredible. she's one person she's a first time congresswoman within days of being in office she issued a resolution to expel the members of congress who participated in the insurrection like that's some courage yep she's there for a couple of days just just inaugurated right and then look what she did when um the eviction moratorium was you know when they weren't extending it congress went home they went yep. home and she said nope and this was a really unconventional move. And I'm so here for it, right? She camped out on the Capitol steps. She called other congressmen back. Some went back. They stood with her. And President Biden extended the moratorium. Have you ever, can you even think of another example where a brand new congressperson wielded that kind of power? Nope. I mean, she, I mean, and this is what I love about her. And I think that you'll be able, and you know, I mean, you know her, she was a major candidate and you were on a lot of phone calls with her and, yeah. and zoom calls. And, um, but there is something very specific about understanding how power works that is, comes from the experience of running for office. And, you know, the average number of times it takes a woman to get elected is three times. I'm sure that statistics actually worse now, but, uh, I, I don't know when the last time it's been studied, but with that, I mean, she had run three times before and she mm -hmm. came in, very clear on what her vision was, very clear on who her constituents that she was, you know, what her constituents were going through because she'd been embedded in the community and very clear on, on, you know, not messing around, not taking it for granted. Um, I mean, this is her exactly. This is a, a, a tweet that she put out on July 30th uh, as she was sleeping outside Capitol Hill. I mean, and that's what it means. It's like she was an activist, but then she also understood how to push power structures Internally and externally. And I think that that's brilliant and that comes through through these experiences. Like, you know, this is your second time around and just how how much what have you learned since your first run that you're <laughs> taking in and you could take into Congress this time around? Right. Well, I mean, I will have to do a whole another show on that. But, <laughs> uh, look, you know, every day we're, you know, we're always learning. Uh, but in, in terms of power, you know, I think that there is perception, right? There's perception that uh, there are some folks that have all the power, there are organizations that have all the power. And, you know, what we've learned over time, as unpopular as this may be, yeah, like, look, there's power in name recognition, maybe, mm -hmm. right? There, there's power in being able to wield lobbyist money, even though we don't like that. It's that's the truth, right? But uh, frankly, and this is what I think Corey does so well, um, what we've really learned, and, and, and this is this is the real crux of campaigning. Uh, if you want to, if you're thinking about running for office, I hope you do. But the real <laughs> crux of it is, 
nobody, nobody's coming to rescue you. There is no big magic right. sailboat, magic dragon that's going to say, poof, you're anointed. You're, you're the candidate. It just doesn't happen, right? So look, you try to build your coalition. You always want to get support from like-minded organizations. You want to work together. All of that is organizing and important. But at the end of the day, it's going to be on you and your team to, to fight for your community. It's you, you are who wins the election. Your team is who wins the election, right? Um, your supporters that you build and cultivate, they win the election. It's, it's not the massive organizations. It's not the, the, the one person that endorses that. That's just not how it works. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, so I think Corey has really, like to my earlier point, really lived her values, right? And, mm -hmm. and maybe there are folks that don't agree with Corey on every single thing she supports or fights for. Maybe they do, right? She's pretty amazing. But um, we know that Corey's a real fighter for us, right? I, I, um, I think, you know, she's quickly sailing to the head of, of the, the squad. I think she's, she's uh, you know, people are very impressed with her as they should be. But that's what happens when you fight for values, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I would certainly be looking to figure out those unconventional ways um, to, to build power in Congress, because I, I, I just think this is the best example of it. Um, yeah. You know, and, and we know, right, we're hearing from the Hill that there are a lot of sitting a long time incumbents that are really angry at these tactics that are starting to be used. And, you know, like Alexandria got uh, criticized for this, you know, her when she was first elected, when she uh, participated in the Sunrise Movement protest, right? But listen, that's that's what it is. That's her constituency, and, and that's how we build together. And and that's how we're going to change. I mean, these are unprecedented times where clearly, you know, you had an insurrection. If they're getting mad over these types of actions, you know, this is when you do that. If you're not going to do it now, then when are you going to do it? So uh, if you're not going to run now, then when are you going to do it? I mean, this is a moment, and this is a very important moment, that if you have the ability and the courage to do so and the situation in which provides you uh, the opportunity to do so, because that's always a part of this too, of course, then do it. And Melanie, I mean, I've seen you, uh, I've seen, you know, Melanie throughout this entire process from 2020 into today. And in, it's really incredible to see the kinds of challenges that you faced uh, running for office during COVID, um, you know, having, let's, you know, for, let's not forget that you have, have kids and you were managing the kids during COVID and teaching them. And I mean, I remember these calls where we'd sit there and be like, okay, well, how do you change a budget now that it's suddenly, you can't knock on doors anymore and how are we going to reach voters? And, and it was a lot of problem solving uh, that occurred. And so it's, it's, it's really just extraordinary to see um, how much you've grown and you're always exceptional, but to see, you know, what kind of campaign this is turning into. And I'm, I'm really, really hopeful um, that the lines, the, the, the fairies, the line fairies, the redistricting fairies are beneficial to you and you have the best circumstance possible so that we can see you in Congress, uh, you know, that on December 1st of, of next year, we will be having another conversation because don't forget where you came from. <laughs> Not, <important>. me. <laughs> Not me. Not <laughs> me. That you, you know, you're, you're on the show or we're talking somewhere else, and uh, we'll book it now. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll lock it in with the scheduler now. So we can, <laughs> I promise, I'll be there. December first, same I'll be time. There. I'll be maybe there. the same place. <laughs> I'll be there. Right, right, for awesome. sure. Yeah. If, can I just say one one other quick thing? If that's all right. You know, when we talk about, and I always do, uh, encouraging folks to run for office. You know, something that I have said from day one is like, look, when you win. And you have to go into it with the mindset you will win. We did last time. We're definitely doing it this time. Uh, winning, that is. But uh, every day that you are there is an opportunity to, to fight for people. It's an opportunity to save lives, right? Mm -hmm. So 
you have to treat it like it might be your last day in office, right? I, I think the mistake that a lot of politicians make once they're elected is they look at and they say, well, wait, I have to not do this, or maybe I should pull back here. Maybe I shouldn't do this because it might hurt my chances of reelection. Like none of that matters, right? We are in, we're, it's do or die time, uh, you know, right now in this country. So we need to get to office and fight like every day like it's our last. So, um, you know, I just want to say that because I think it's really, really important. Uh, I think Corey embodies that as do, you know, several others, but we need more folks like that in Congress. Um, and, you know, thank you so much for having me. I really um, love to be here with you. We have your website up there so people can get involved. And of course, contributions are always welcome and needed. Uh, when you don't take corporate money, it is not easy to raise money, especially since there's so many um, so many things that are unpredictable right now. I, you know, it's really, really important that Melanie's campaign has the foundation so that she is, uh, you know, she's she's a viable candidate. She is one, and she will continue to get those endorsements so that she can solidify uh, the left and organize the left. So we have all of your stuff up there, and uh, we're looking forward to several more conversations, Melanie. Thank you so much, Nomi. I appreciate you. Thanks. <laughs> Take care. We will be right back after a brief little break. Brief little break. So stick around and click subscribe. Have you done that yet? Did you click subscribe? Are you a patron yet? Join us now. This is the moment that you should be a patron. If you watch our show and you can throw in a little bit of money into the pot, it makes a huge difference. It keeps this one light right in front of me on. I could get a bunch of other lights too. We could have more lighting. No, I'm kidding. Uh, join us at patreon.com slash the Nomi Keisha. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. Alice Esperi is a reporter with The Intercept. Uh, she writes about U.S. foreign policy abuses by military and security forces and the repression of dissent. She's reported from Palestine, Haiti, El Salvador, Colombia, and across the United States. But she's originally from Italy and lives in the Bronx. Gotta share that. Gotta share it. I love, I've never said Alice. I, I, I learned something new today. I love that. Thank you. And thanks for having me, too. Of course. So um, you have this article that uh, just came out in The Intercept uh, titled Anti-BDS Laws Could Upend the Constitutional Right to Engage in Boycott. And just like we're sitting here today watching the Supreme Court, uh, you know, possibly overturn Roe v. Wade based on a long conservative fight at the local level in state legislatures, um, over the last 35, 40 years, you're seeing similar actions uh, in many other areas. It's like they're literally checking off the boxes um, through state level uh, organizing at a time in which Democrats have been like MIA locally. So, you know, tell us about uh, Boycott, the, the film, and what's been happening uh, at, at the local level. Sure, and thanks so much for having me. So Boycott is a new film that just uh, premiered in New York last month. Um, it's produced by Just Vision, which is this group that kind of, you know, looks to fill a bit of a media gap when it comes to Israel and Palestine and really highlight, um, for the most part, um, you know, activists and organizers in Palestine and Israel doing work there. And this film is a bit um, different for them because they actually focus on a very U.S. story. It's a very local story. Um, and, uh, you know, the focus is basically on this anti-BDS legislation that for several years now has been passed at the state level across the country. There have been 33 bills passed at the state level, but more than 200 that have actually been introduced uh, over the last several years and really have pretty much flown under the radar, which I think is what's so important about this film is that it really sheds a light on this very deliberate, very calculated long-term effort, as you put it, to, to pass this legislation. Uh, and you know, your viewers might be familiar with the fact that there were um, there was a federal, uh, there was an effort to pass such legislation at the federal level. Uh, some of it would have actually criminalized boycott in Israel, uh, but you know that that fell through for for now anyway. Um, uh, but at the state level, nobody really was pushing back, and so a bunch of these bills were passed that essentially, um, most of them, you know, target contractors, state contractors, who so basically use the power of the state um, to provide. Um, money to to people and companies that choose to engage with um, in a boycott. Of okay, so so let's 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 um, help me understand that more. Like, what what do you mean by contractors? I mean, we, we're I think people are very familiar with what's happening with Ben and Jerry's right now and how out of control it's gotten. I I was really surprised by you know, and, and they're standing their ground. But um, is is it something similar to that, or is this is this you know, it, uh, Ben and Jerry's somewhat. of course being saying that they're no longer going to be uh, selling uh, in the West Bank. Right. I mean, there are there are a number of bills. They are not all the same, uh, although all of them seek to sort of stifle criticism of the Israeli occupation of Palestine in different ways. So in some states we have in New York, for instance, we have the state um, choosing not to um, invest the pensions, the state pensions in companies that boycott Israel. In other states, the um, you know, the, the punishing for kind of people that are, are critical of the occupation is much more direct. So we first actually at the Intercept reported about this. Um, one of the characters in this film, um, Bahia Hamawi, who's this Palestinian-American um, ch child speech pathologist in Texas, who lost her contract with the Austin public school system when she refused to sign a pledge saying that she mm -hmm. will not boycott Israel. So a, a lot of people kind of learned about these bills when they saw this new, you know, 
this new phrase pop up in their contract and this this new pledge requiring them not to uh, not to boycott Israel and, and, and promise they would not boycott Israel. Uh, another character the film should, um, follows is McJordal, who was an attorney in Arizona who had a state contract to provide legal services for incarcerated people in the county jail system, and uh, who also had this, you know, this language thrown into his contract and refused to sign. Um, so what, what really, what this does is essentially target state contractors and withhold state contracts and withhold business from the state if people do not sign this pledge that they will not boycott Israel. And um and what's interesting is you know one of the one of the stories that the film follows is is that of this Arkansas publication, the Arkansas Times, uh, whose um whose newsroom was not even invo involved in a boycott to start with. They were not interested in the BDS movement. They were not actively participating. They just refused to sign the pledge on principle because they thought the state had no business telling them. Because they're journalists? <laughs> Um, which exactly so like what I think really is is striking about this film and this story is the fact that this is you know of course about Palestine and and, and the BDS movement but it really is about First Amendment and kind of your constitutional liberties that you know so many of us take for granted all the time that are being eroded at the state level with absolutely no pushback. Um, one of the most you know fascinating scenes in the film is um, I, I describe it in the story, but. The filmmakers are interviewing this Republican state senator in Arkansas, who was the main sponsor of this bill, and accidentally run into a Democrat who voted for the bill, just like the rest of the state legislature, who had no idea what he voted for the bill, who had never even, you know, stopped to read the bill and question whether this is even constitutional or not. And this is really how a lot of these bills um, were passed. Uh, it might not surprise your viewers to know that um, Alec, the American Legislative uh, Council, was behind a lot of this legislation, as they often are behind kind of this state level conservative pushes to, you know, um, get through legislation just with no scrutiny. I think that that's really the key element here. There was some pushback um, against this legislation in some states, but really not much. And actually one of the, you know, the, the quotes in the film that I think is just fascinating is this, this Arkansas state senator is saying, you know, the Palestinian side was not here advocating the other side of the issue. This just flew through. Nobody, nobody questioned it. And, and I think it's, you know, it, it is so, telling that the moment you present a bill as pro-Israel, there is just no questioning from, the, you know, Republicans and Democrats are like, nobody wants to go there. Nobody wants to risk well, saying anything. And some of that is, you know, APAC um, has spent a lot of money over the years, you know, a lot of money over the years uh, sending local lawmakers on the Democratic side and, of course, Republican side to Israel for their, essentially, their propaganda trips. Now, that's normal for a lot of organizations to do that, um, especially foreign interests, but they've they've really, you know, put people through a pipeline and and you know kept them there. And and for the most part, you know, folks have stayed true. I mean, there, I think there have been a few people who've said like, oh, I've changed my mind. I've I've evolved on this issue. Um, but they won't go to war with them. And that I think is fascinating. Is this like once you like what you just said, it's just not worth it. So they just sign it. They're not going to be, you know, necessarily the biggest advocate, but they're also not going to be an opponent. Because what happens? I mean, what happens when somebody stands up to Israel? I mean, we, we see what's happening with Ilhan Omar, but what happens? Yeah, that, that's the problem. The political cost of saying anything that's vaguely critical of Israel is just, you know, so huge for, for elected officials that nobody really wants to touch it. But what's interesting about these bills is that it's making that cost, it's putting that cost on everybody else, right? You might mm -hmm. be an attorney providing legal services in Arizona who cannot say anything about Israel or you lose your job, right? You might be a speech therapist in Texas who does not want to sign this pledge. You will lose your state contract. So this is really kind of expanding the, the 
you know, the, the, the burden, the suspended impact of, of this um, political influence, which is ultimately what this is. And what a lot of these people are saying who file suits in their states against this say, legislation, yeah. uh, you know, what they're saying is like, this is like such an un-American um, legislation to have. I mean, this goes, of course, against our constitution, but really, you know, you're having, you're giving precedence to a foreign government, you're allowing a foreign government to meddle in, in our own rights. And, and that is really, you know, why they filed suit and while they fought back against this legislation um, to really kind of uphold their rights as Americans. And one point they make, and I think the film makes very well, and that it's, you know, it's very concerning is that this is really not just about uh, the BDS movement. Um, Texas, for instance, which is one of the states that had this legislation, has already used that legislation to pass similar bills that um, essentially make it impossible for people to get state contracts if they boycott fossil fuels or firearms. And so you can really just kind of see the possibilities of this. All you need to do is change a few words in the legislation and you can target any other cause, you know, on whatever side of the political spectrum, because one of the, you know, who knows how this could be used um, down the line. So it's really, um, really kind of pervasive and, and dangerous, regardless of whether, you know, one supports a BDS movement or not. Is it is it just coming from Alec or is this uh, being funded? I mean, when did this start to operationalize and where's the money? Like, where can you track it? Yeah, so this is another really interesting part of the story. The, the bills came in response to growing international support for the BDS movement, which, you know, you might remember is, is a Palestinian-led peaceful movement. And I think this is really um, important because people tend to kind of not not sort of um, acknowledge where this movement came from. This is a Palestinian civil society initiative and a, and a Palestinian call for solidarity to the international community that was taken up in recent years and has grown uh, quite significantly. Um, the Israeli government, of course, has very much opposed that. And one of the one of the, um, the kind of reporting threads this film follows is the funding that that flew from the you know from the Israeli government through this non-governmental organization they set up because they cannot directly, of course, influence U.S. legislative processes. Uh, so the, the U.S. the Israeli government set up this group that funded U.S. groups, including um, Christian Christian groups in the U.S. Uh, one of the most prominent ones is Christians United for Israel, mm -hmm. which um, in turn lobbied for these bills very aggressively. And I think this is another very interesting aspect of, of the story. It kind of the film explores this, um, you know, sort of marriage of convenience and opportunism, if you will, between um, the Christian, um, you know, Christian evangelicals and and the Israeli government, where there is this common cause uh, um, that's, um, you know. For, for the Christian evangelicals is basically they want Israel's biblical borders to be restored so that Jesus Christ can come back to earth. And, and the Israeli government is very happy to go along with it as long as it uh, does US support. They're, they're, they're willing to go along with the alien theory uh, as long as it, <laughs> it, it, it I, mean, I, I know that's the case. It's just every time I think about it, I'm like, okay. it's quite but, but this is, you know, I mean, we laugh about it, but it's really how these policies are ultimately passed. I mean, the, the state senator in Arkansas, I mentioned, you know, he he says that in the film, you know, when kind of like no shame is like, you know, when Jesus Christ comes back to earth, everybody, Jews included, will go to hell. And this is why we support this anti-BDS legislation so that that can happen faster. Right. So it, it's really, um, really striking. And I think it's a story that, you know, some people are starting to pay attention to, but it, it just has not, uh, not garnered the amount of attention it, it should, I think. Um, where can people watch this film if they want to see it right now? Um, well, they should go to Just Vision's website and check out uh, promotional material. I am not sure whether it is available online yet. It's premiered in film theaters in New York for now. Um, and, um, and in New York, where, where can people see it? 
um, it was at the NYC Dark Festival um, last month. I'm not sure if it's still screening, but um, it will. We'll put that information up. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and actually, I think Just Vision does a lot of work with, you know, um, kind of sending their films out to schools and different groups across the country, like, really want them uh, shown, particularly because this is the kind of story that the media tend to, tend to ignore, right? So even the, the anti-BDS legislation itself, with the exception of some local coverage of these different lawsuits where they happen, there just has not been a very... Um, significant effort to cover this bill systematically, to watch what's happening across the country, to just follow these legal challenges, which, by the way, is, is a very important part of the story because, you know, um, some of the plaintiffs that are, some of the, the, the people who are um, profiled in the film won their lawsuits against their states, against Texas, against Arizona. Uh, but the, the Arkansas case actually is up at the, um, at the Eighth Circuit right now. It, you know, mm -hmm. they originally lost, appealed, and won, and now the case has been reheard, and it could end up before the Supreme Court um, which, you know, obviously has massive implications for the right to boycott anything. Oh, exactly. Which is free speech. I mean, I think the most fascinating aspect of this is this is essentially a foreign government. I mean, you could say the same thing about Saudi Arabia. You could say the same thing about, uh, you know, any foreign government. Um, you know, we have more more freedom to, to challenge our own government than we do other governments, which is uh, you know, oftentimes we say that we're, we're the empire and we're the, the colonizers, but Makes yeah, you think but, a little bit. Yeah, but you know, like what's interesting about these bills is that if they, you know, if the government rules as it, it, the the Arkansas Attorney General is trying to do, that you have no right to boycott, that you that that is not a constitutionally protected right. Which you know, by the way, it's paradox because the, the Supreme Court has already ruled that much. Forty years ago, there was like a very well known case about the boycott of um, white owned businesses in Mississippi, and uh, and the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that. Um, that boycott is actually constitutionally protected, but now we're back in court, and there are, you know, the government's trying to uh, interpret that differently, and maybe suggest that you can actually call for a boycott, but not engage in one. And so, you know, as you know, as we've seen with abortion and and other things we have long taken for granted, that's back in question. Um, yeah. there, and it really, I think, shows how fragile the um, the constitutional protections we take for granted are, um, and how. Um, how insidious this legislation is when you don't pay attention. You know, as was the case with abortion, you have all these bills being passed at the local level here and there, and there's, you know, eventually something sticks. Eventually, you get a judge to rule um, in favor, and 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 this is where you end up. You know, back well, in, especially in if you have conservatives who just dominated uh, in in appointing these justices for many for life, and of course the Democrats. Theme of the day: when Democrats don't exist locally. You have Republicans dominating, and you know, and this is their forty-plus year experiment: is to take control at every single aspect of government, and then Democrats come in, you know, have the Senate, the House, and and the presidency like once every twenty years, and then lose it. <laughs> so when it comes to Israel, they're like, there's basically no difference between exactly, exactly. That, that in general, yes, that that's of course the case, but it. it it doesn't even matter here, basically. But the, but the local, using this as a precedent now, I mean, this is the problem, is that yeah. if there are Democrats who have the same beliefs, um, you know, Zionist-led beliefs, that's one thing. But now this is a, you know, take your beliefs aside and look at it from a legal perspective. You know, there are a lot of, this is where the law and being a judge is, is important. You might have a personal belief over something, but then there's just the constitutional right, and it could be a precedent for so many other things, and which is why, you know, that one case... Uh, was one, even though it's it's clearly leaning towards white business owners. So, right, yeah. And, you know what's interesting with the with the Arkansas Times um, 
case, which is now at the Eighth Circuit, is you know the state senator who lobbied for this bill is actually saying, you know, I don't care if they lose business because I don't like what they publish anyway, which is really not about Israel, not about the. Yes. He's kind of you know like saying the silent part out loud, like it just the, the fact that there is no interest in in kind of protecting your state's newspaper's right to publish uh, what they like, as, you know, let let alone. Um, the right to boycott, which they're not actively engaging in, is, is really just telling um, and, and kind of terrifying, frankly. Slippery slope. Alice Sperry, reporter at The Intercept, thank you so much for joining us and for, for sharing this story. It's it's super fascinating. Um, hopefully folks will be able to check out the film uh, wherever they are, even if they don't agree, because, you know, that is a right that we have in our country is, is to be able to see different sides of an argument. And even if you don't agree with understand that fundamentally we have constitutional rights and they're just basically tapping into uh, a nerve and, and, and an opportunity to organize around fundamentally cutting our rights, whether or not, you know, that's their agenda or not. Um, Alija, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. And to everybody else, please join us on Femme Friday uh, this Friday. Uh, we're going to have a jam-packed show. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, thank you to our team here, David, and thank you to Ruthie and our guests, Melanie Drigo and Alija Sperry from The Intercept. Always grateful to everyone. Stay in solidarity, and we will see you on Friday. The No Mickey Show. Clash momentarily for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed. Deep state, faith fed. Everybody break bread. Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion, and this melted pot we live in. Time to build a new system, unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue, talking heads left is best. The saga continues. The No Meeky Show.